From 12 News, this is Newsmakers. As the president of Brown University for the last decade, Christina Paxson has encountered many challenges, not least managing the storied Ivy League institution through COVID and remote learning. New issues are on the horizon, including negotiating a new financial agreement with the City of Providence and deepening research collaboration with the state's hospitals. This week on Newsmakers, Brown University President Christina Paxson. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White alongside 12 News Politics Editor Ted Nisi, and we welcome to the program once again President of Brown University, Christina Paxson. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. As I said at the uh, top of the show there, a decade ago, Brown University and the City of Providence struck a deal where the university would pay the city $32 million over 11 years. And so people understand at home, nonprofit institution like colleges, hospitals, and religious institutions are exempt from paying property taxes. So there are what's called payment in lieu of taxes or pilot deals arranged to offset that. The agreement the university and the city made is expiring in May. Mm -hmm. The sentiment from several city leaders, including members of the city council that we talked to, is Brown University needs to pay more uh, in, the new, in the new deal. Do you anticipate that amount going up? You know, we, we haven't started the conversations yet with Brett Smiley. And I'm really looking forward to the conversations. Mayor-elect Brett Smiley. Mayor-elect yeah. yeah. Brett Smiley. And, uh, you know, he's made it clear that he wants to have these conversations to start shortly after he's sworn in. So, you know, we'll see where we go from there. And I am a supporter of the idea that Brown should support the city. We do. We're proud that we do. Uh, the, the one kind of big picture thing I w might put is or say is that I think we would all benefit from a less transactional model and one where our interests are more aligned, where we're able to bring Brown's, not just our financial resources, but also our intellectual resources, our, you know, everything that we do uh, to benefit the city and the state. So, so let's break that down a little bit. When you say a less mm. transactional, you mean less uh, transfer of cash, um, you know, from the university to the city, and it looks like something else. What, what could, what are the options? I, I think there are many, many options. There are many models out there across the country, and I don't want to speculate as to which one's best. That's something we're really going to have to work out with the mayor. You're an economist, and uh, I'm sure you've thought about this. Big picture, city leaders, they do have a point <clears throat> that, on the one hand, Brown's growth is good for the city. It's not like there's all these big companies trying to uh, have all this economic activity and growth there. But because it is in the end a nonprofit, as those other institutions Tim mentioned are, it, it unbalances the tax base because property taxes are the foundation of the city budget. I mean, you know, in, that's, Brown will continue to grow, no doubt, which mm -hmm. means this is going to be a continued uh, sort of pain point. Is there a, a bigger picture fix to this that you think, yeah. like a policy fix that would maybe make it less of a, where the city always sees it as a mixed bag for Brown to keep growing? Well, I, a couple responses to that. And, and one is, I think... Brown is shifting, we're shifting towards a view that we can be more of a catalyst for economic development in the city. And when you look at what we've done recently in the Jewelry District, uh, 225 Dyer Street, um, South Street Landing, Brown's in those buildings, we don't own them. They, they were built by private developers, they are on the tax rolls. You pay rent. We pay rent. And that model, we're not going to do that for everything, but that model really serves everybody well because we get private developers, we get other types of industry coming into the city, other types of businesses, more jobs created. 
and we're fulfilling our needs, but we're not doing it at the expense of city taxes. Is it hard to calculate the financial benefit to the city, though, for those types of things? You know, I mean, these policy, this deal has to go through the city council, it has to go through mm -hmm. city hall. I mean, can you articulate that sort of spreadsheet for them and well you know I haven't done that yet but sure I mean you you could probably sit down and say look at all the places where we're renting taxes are paid on those spaces what are those taxes add up to I haven't done it but I'm sure it's significant you said the conversation about the pilot the pilot program uh, hasn't begun yet with the mayor-elect Brett Smiley but have you met with mayor-elect Smiley uh, I met with him uh, very very early on very high level we didn't get into any details after and then, he won election. Uh, I think it was after he won the primary. Which would, yeah, he yeah. had no Effectively, challenger yeah. in the general. Exactly. Effectively, he won election. Officially, he had not won the election. And then uh, the last time my office reached out, it was clear that he wanted to hold off discussions until after he was uh, formally the mayor. Okay. Well, he's on the show next week, so we'll ask him. You can ask him, exactly. Exactly. Yep, you, um, can. you mentioned the jewelry district, and uh, I, there's been a drumbeat of new. I've, I've said to people, I think people, we were also busy with the campaign. We missed, there was a lot of news out of Brown in recent months. Um, you mentioned some of the lease deals where you're part of bigger developments for lab space in the jewelry district. Mm -hmm. You're going to build a life sciences building, and then, of course, the things go out on College Hill. But specifically in the jewelry district, do you think, have you announced most of the large physical footprint expansions? that you expect in the medium term or could you see more announcements in the coming years as you look out at the plan as you expand research? I could see a lot more coming out in the coming years and and again it with Brown in its role as catalyst for development so if you think really big picture you know what do I want the jewelry district to look like in 10 years my hope is that it's a place where yes you know Brown is doing research on life-saving technologies and drugs that are going to help the health of Rhode Islanders, but I also want it to be a place where there are different types of industries there, many different types of jobs, residential life. You know, this should be a vibrant, amazing part of a great city and a great state. That's going to take time. You know, you go up to Boston, you look at Kendall Square, it took 40 years to get from their beginning to where they are now. So I see a kind of consistent, steady development that Brown will be a part of, uh, certainly not doing the whole thing ourselves, though. Well, let's talk about partnerships a little bit because you just, and one of those announcements was uh, after you were a big supporter of the Care New England Lifespan merger that the AG did squashed, and now you have an agreement to unify how you do research. This came mm -hmm. out a little technical for the people at home, but yeah, right now it's all bifurcated between the three institutions, and it's yeah. going to kind of come under one umbrella. Brown, a big part of that. You know, I can imagine people at home saying, well, it's still the same three institutions, so how much of a difference will this make? Can you make that concrete, why this matters in your view? Let me try, because I understand <laughs> people hear research, and it's like, what does that mean? What does that mean for me? And because we've had this very uh, not integrated research model in fractured, maybe. fractured yes, that's, thank you, fractured, <laughs> it's, fra it's fractured. We haven't been able to do the kind of things that they do in cities and states where there's more integration. So just give you a few examples. You know, you live in Rhode Island and you have somebody in your family who has Alzheimer's disease, which is increasingly common, sadly. You want that person to have access to the best drugs out there, many of which are in clinical trials. For clinical trials to really happen, you need a tight integration between the researchers at Brown, the people at Lifespan, 
the people at Care New England, because as you know, a lot of patients move back and mm -hmm. forth across those two health systems. Mm -hmm. So by integrating research, we can both advance discovery, we can get better treatments for Alzheimer's and better treatment for different forms of cancer that are some of which are very um, specific to Rhode Island or big problems in Rhode Island, but we can also uh, give people who live here access to things that they wouldn't have otherwise or have to travel to get. And the other piece with the hospitals that I, I found very interesting was, uh, Brown Nuts, you're gonna, you're just going to give $5 million, is my understanding, to women and infants as part of their capital campaign to build the new labor and delivery center. I will say I was there a few months ago. They could use the money. Yeah. Um, they, need, they need an upgrade over there. They, they've made no bones about it. But I, I, maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, I, that felt a little unusual for me. And you talk about Brown's different ways of playing a role to just say, we're just going to help to fund this large capital expense for one of the hospitals. Why did you think that was necessary and the right move for Brown to help mm -hmm. Karen New England get that project done? I think they're looking at $28 million overall they want to raise. Yeah. I, I will be honest, it is unusual. You know, in most places, funds flow from the hospitals to the university, <laughs> not the other way around. That's fine. Uh, and, you know, we know that Care New England has to behave really aggressively and strategically to regain financial health to survive as a standalone healthcare organization. And it's important to Brown that that happens. I mean, you know, you think about our medical education, our students are in women and infants hospital. They're in Kent, they're at Butler, they're training in psychiatry and OBGYN and family medicine. I think when my wife was having a baby, I think at one point someone came in and said, can we bring a student in with us? Oh, <laughs> sorry, I hope that was okay yeah, I, with her. I think she accepted We'll yeah. say she did. We'll say but, she was nice then, about it. But yeah. then there are the residency <laughs> programs mm -hmm. that are also under the auspices of the university in partnership with mm -hmm. the health systems, and a lot of those doctors stay in the state. Mm -hmm. So if we want great physicians in this state, we need to have strong healthcare systems. We didn't get our merger, fine. Let's, maybe not fine, but it is what it is. So we're doing everything we can to build strong healthcare in Rhode Island. I want to uh, shift gears a little bit. I've been covering the courts for a long time and I make it a habit not to predict uh, how judges will rule, but journalists who cover the Supreme Court closely have written that it is likely that uh, the justices or a majority of them are going to throw out race-based race college admissions. Can educational diversity at Brown University be reached without directly taking account of race? That's a very good question, and I'm glad you didn't ask me to make a prediction, because like you, I do not do that. <laughs> uh, so we, we don't know what the Supreme Court's gonna do at this point. We, we, have, we can look at the experience of universities in states that have said that no, you can no longer take race or ethnicity into account as one of many factors in admissions. So Berkeley, University of Michigan. And to be honest, those universities have struggled to maintain the level of diversity that they had prior to uh, those decisions. And you know, partly it's just a numbers game. You get, you know, we get 50,000 applications a year and we're trying to build a diverse class, diverse in many, many different dimensions, in rural, urban, international, kids from Rhode Island, kids in, who are interested in the sciences, the humanities. So diversity is broader than race and ethnicity, but that's a piece of it. And if the Supreme Court moves in that direction, there are things we can do to try to maintain a diverse student body that don't run afoul of the law, obviously, uh, but it's going to be hard. 
You know, when this issue came up uh, last in 2003, uh, the Supreme Court upheld at the time affirmative action, obviously saying it was permissible to consider race as one factor to achieve educational diversity. But the author of that decision, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, said that, quote, 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary. Are colleges and universities, again, that was 2003. So are colleges and universities on track to meet that quasi-deadline that Sandra Day O'Connor set? Well, I don't know how, I don't know whether this was, she was just picking a number that was a arbitrary. long time and arbitrary. I, I don't think there was any real analysis that went into it, at least not that I've seen. Uh, I do think based on the experiences of other colleges and universities, we are not quite uh, to that point where it, we don't need uh, some level of affirmative action. To be master of the obvious, you hope that the Supreme Court does not uh, you know, yes, and affirmative we, we've been very, we've signed on to amicus briefs, we've been very clear and upfront about our support of the current, what, what is currently the law of the land, and that's been upheld multiple times over the past several decades. I want to ask you before we go to commercial, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, in the, in the discussions that asked one of the uh, attorneys, he said, quote, why the disparate treatment of religion versus race, evangelical Christians, Catholics, Muslims add to the educational diversity at Harvard, and they were talking about Harvard, and other religious groups add to diversity, why not ask about that? How would you answer Justice Kavanaugh on that? Well, uh, maybe I'm mis... Uh, he was suggesting that why, why isn't, why is it only race? Why not religious? Oh, it's religious? not only, it's not Well, Brown doesn't race. ask about, that's in the, in the common data set, you don't ask about religious affiliation. No, but, but what you get, I mean, when you, I, I think people don't really understand admissions. They think, you know, you're getting a list of test scores and then you have some data on demographics and you make decisions from that. And we have recommendations. We have the students' personal statements. We know what's important to them, what they value. And so by the time we're making admissions decisions in this very holistic way, we're really trying to look at the student as a whole person. If they talk about the significance of their religious life for how they view their work in the community, that's going to be important. That's something that we're going to take into account. So again, it's wanting to look at the whole person and what we may be obliged to do is to blot out certain parts of a student's identity when we assess their application for admissions. All right, we're gonna take a break on the program. When we come back, our conversation with Brown University President Christina Paxson will continue. Stay with us, you're watching Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White alongside Ted Nisi. Our guest this week is the president of Brown University, Christina Pax, and we were talking during the break uh, about the life sciences and all the medical research that's happening at Brown University. And right before we came back, you started to talk about an undergraduate student who was working on glioblastoma, which is brain cancer. And we had to stop you because we we're coming back yeah. to the show. So fin finish that thought. I'll, I'll finish it. And, and the point that I was really trying to make was that, yeah, we're growing research, it's gonna help Rhode Islanders, but it's also very integrated with undergraduate education. So the story, and this was in the Brown Daily Herald this morning, anybody can look it up. Great is newspaper. An yeah. undergraduate who just won a major award, national award, for, she's a biomedical engineer, for research she's doing to, um, uh, 
I'm not a biomedical engineer, but it's about identifying, being able to identify glioblastoma cells. An undergrad. And she, undergrad. I was going to say, she's still an undergrad. She's, she's an like, undergrad. She's wow. actually go going to complete her degree at the end of this month. Under <laughs> Underachiever. Yeah. Yes. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I have some smart students at Brandon. We do. Yeah. We Rumor do. has it. Yeah. Um, look, so in 2014, you launched Building on Distinction. It's mm -hmm. a, a bad summary, but it's a roadmap for the university. Um, and you could, of course, not predict what would happen six years later in, in 2020 in the pandemic. But as part of that was the Brown Promise, which is yep. eliminating student loans from all financial aid packages. Is that going to continue? Is that still on the roadmap moving forward? So uh, thank you for that. We, yes, we made a commitment to remove all loans from student aid packages. We did that. and. We, we also announced in order to continue this forever, we have to raise some money. We have to raise $100 million. That's where I was going to go with this. I am $5 million <laughs> away from completing that goal. So I can't imagine ever going back to our students and saying, I'm sorry, we're going to put student loans back into your financial aid packages. So that, that's one of my major priorities. Well, if you're watching that Brown alums who are watching have $5 million sitting around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm curious when we're talking about money. Um, so the endowment last year, at when the markets were doing great, um, I remember they were, you, you all were almost sheepish when you had to announce the endowment had hit $6.9 billion because right. of so much money. And, and I talked to folks at Brown who said, we're, this, is, you know, this will yield more, which means we're going to figure out how we're going to use this responsibly because it's supposed mm -hmm. to be long-term money. Much different year for the markets now. I yeah. know at, at mid-year, I think it had dipped to $6.5 billion. I'd imagine it's not much higher. Is, yeah. that, is that enough of a shift that it will, you'll have to trim your sales a little, or is or is it still yeah. kind of the, the big plans you were talking about a year ago when the markets were in better shape are still feasible with where mm -hmm. the endowment is now? Well, uh, luckily we were prudent enough because we know that markets can go up and down that we didn't commit all of the new funds that are going to come out of that bigger endowment uh, forever. So, you know, we were cautious. Uh, so some of the plans like working towards being actually need blind for international mm -hmm. students, which I'm really excited about, uh, our, our plan to move forward with a college access pipeline program, and also building this integrated life sciences building in the jewelry district. Those are going to move ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing is being put on hold, but we're watching things really carefully because mm -hmm. we have to be fiscally prudent. Uh, we've seen society, I guess, uh, struggle more and more with mental health. I, I filed yeah. a report recently at the skyrocketing number, and I'm, I'm not overusing that word, of MHIs, which are mental health incidents that Providence police officers have had to respond to, particularly mm -hmm. 2020 and 2021. Are you seeing a greater demand for mental health services at your counseling and psychological services program? We're not, uh, interestingly, because I know the numbers that you've seen, we are not seeing a huge increase. And, but we do recognize that students right now need probably more emotional support than they did before. They don't all need sit in the therapist's office once a week and get a therapy session, but they need broader emotional support. We have a big push on health and wellness and physical activity that I think is really important. Especially, I assume, from the pe uh, staff, the faculty that students interact with daily. Yeah. Like they're the front line, right? They are on the these front things. line. They are. They are. So but some faculty historically sort of took a hands off of her, that kind of thing. Like, my job's to teach you this course, and we're done. Right. Yeah, but many <laughs> brown, brown faculty traditionally, they care about the well-being of their students, mm -hmm. and they know that they can't do well in the classroom if they're not Mm. healthy 
right? So that's important. So, so no, fortunately, we haven't seen the big increase, but we are paying very, very close attention to it. You, uh, you, I remember early in the pandemic, you spoke out publicly as sort of for your uh, sector saying, you know, while the Browns and Harvards will be fine, we can't be remote learning forever. We're, the higher ed model in America will not survive. And you've always kept an eye on the broader trends. And, mm -hmm. you know, again, Brown will be fine. You'll have your struggles, but your Brown will be okay. But there are a lot of sort of the middle class of colleges mm -hmm. in the United States are looking at this demographic decline in the coming decade. We've seen some, we've seen some right. of them closing and merging. What's your current take on what's going to happen in the 2020s. Do you think we're going to see a lot of closures and mergers? Yeah. Is it still look dire to you? What do you think? I, I think we're going to learn a lot in the coming year because a lot of colleges got through the past several years, hard years, with uh, federally, yes, federal yeah, relief right. funds, yeah. FEMA funds, things like that. When that money goes away, it's going to expose a lot of problems. So mm. we may see some real problems, especially among the smaller, mid-tier, uh, not-for-profit colleges. And that's going to be something we have to pay attention to. The, the other area that I've been really focused on is support for public education, mm -hmm. for the URIs and the Rhode Island colleges. You know, Rhode Island has done a great job with Community College of Rhode Island, but I don't think we've invested enough in our public education system. People talk about the number of college students going down, it's actually, there's so many students who should be going to college now who aren't. So there's no lack of... That's interesting. Of that goes a little against... Gina Raimondo was just saying in the Wall Street Journal the other day, we've got to get away from thinking so many people need to go to college in order to have you know the credential uh, they need. I, I know maybe you're talking about two different things, yeah, but how do you yeah. think about that? I, I guess the way I think about it is there are many... The higher education system is really nuanced, a lot of different parts, and it goes from technical training, apprentice programs. You know, We're a very proud partner of the Building Futures Apprentice Program. Uh, through to you know two years degrees, four years degrees, so on. But if you compare the U.S. to places like Canada, Japan, European countries, we used to be number one in the world for rates of college attainment. We're now drifting down and down and down. Nineteen twenty. Mm. China hasn't is zooming up behind us. So I wouldn't. I'm not so sold. I, I think it's dangerous to say. Eh, we don't really need those college degrees. Hmm. We do. So your message to the General Assembly and to Governor Dan McKee, invest more in public higher education? Yes, and my message to our, our uh, very wonderful congressional delegation is push to expand the Pell Grant. So Brown is opening new dorms on Brook Street next fall, um, adding, if I read right, 351 undergraduate student beds on campus. Two years ago, you opened another residence hall. Does that all suggest that the university is increasing enrollment or are these spaces replacing old ones? What should people make of the, the residence hall expansion that's happening? So the, the primary purpose of the residence hall, there are really two, but the primary purpose is to pull students out of the neighborhoods and back into uh, dorms. And so what's happened over the years as Brown has grown and it has grown, is we've had more and more students living in the neighborhoods oh, around. Uh, that tension. <laughs> tension. There's some tensions around that, which I take very seriously. And this is going to let us resolve some of those tensions and I think deliver a better experience for students. Um, 
I don't think I'm insulting the rest of the faculty if I say Dr. Ashisha is probably the most famous member of the Brown faculty at the moment. He's at the White House, obviously, doing the mm -hmm. COVID response. Um, you know, I know you you put very clearly in your statement announcing he would, his temporary appointment. We can't wait to bring him back to Brown. Yes. We will be welcoming you back to Brown. People see him popping up on TV and wonder, will he ever be back in Providence? Do you still expect Dr. Cha to come back? I still expect Dr. Cha to come back. How much longer do you think he'll be at the White House? Do you have any sense? Uh, well, you know, when he went, he was talking about somewhere up to 10 to 14 months. Uh, I don't see any change for that, but that's really for him to decide. Um, well, and the, along with the president. <laughs> yeah, right, right. The president of the United States. That's not yeah, a brown president of the United States. Well, <laughs> both, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. That's true. Um, so ten, by, 10 years goes by quickly. It that's does. how long you've been leading Brown University. Um, I know you're under contract, but just broadly speaking, how, how long do you see yourself at the helm of the university? That's a good question. I, I, I'm not somebody who makes plans years ahead, but I would say two things. One is there are a lot of things that we're doing that I'm really excited about and I want to see them move forward before I step down. So I have, you know, I'm excited about my work. I'm eager to continue doing it for some period of time. I also know, though, that universities, you know, university presidents have sell-by dates, and you don't want to go beyond them. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you need to what bring in. That? What causes that? What do you think? Well, you need, I think you need new ideas. You need people who come in with new perspectives. It's healthy for an organization. So I don't want to be, you know, the longest-serving president in the. You want to be doing this show when you're 95? No, you know? I don't. I don't. So, so there will be a transition at some point, but not immediately. And real quick, we have 30 seconds left. Just re remind me if you could, how much time do you have left on your current contract right now? Uh, after this academic year, three more years. Okay, so you'll be around for a while longer. We hope to have you back every year on this program. If that's <laughs> Thank okay you. with you. All right. Well, listen, Christina Paxson, uh, president of Brown University, we really appreciate you having uh, coming back on the program. Program. Hope Thanks you had a great Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, and thank you for watching. If you missed any of it, it's on WPRI.com. Don't forget to sign up for our podcast. For Ted Nisi, I'm Tim White. We'll see you next week on Newsmaker.